Welcome, everybody, to the 23rd edition of the Light Shed Podcast. I'm Brandon Ross, along with my partners, Walter Pysik and Rich Greenfield. Walt, nice background today, another space background. I have just one question for you. Did you want to be an astronaut when you grew up? No, I did not. A heart surgeon. You wanted to be a heart? What happened? Indeed. Um, I started taking science classes. <laughs> I did want to be an astronaut. And at least up in that it kind of changed after the Challenger, but you know, I did oh. want to be an astronaut. Sorry, it's just true. Damn it's it. true. Rich. I I still remember where I was at that exact moment. I think I think we all do, not to give away our uh, respective ages, especially since I look so good still. Um but <laughs> uh, yeah, I uh, I don't, I think I wanted to be a lawyer when I was a kid because I like to argue a lot. And everyone was like, you should be a lawyer. But then I was like, I have too much ADD to read all those giant books. So I became a stock analyst. I was going to say, so that's how I got stuck with you. <laughs> <laughs> sort of feel like I got the bad deal here, but okay. <laughs> Uh, let's talk about what happened uh, just after our podcast last week. We uh, uh, hold on. Why is this not working? There we go. Uh, is that up on the screen? There we go. Peacock. Um, Peacock coming to Roku, Brandon. Uh, it took. It didn't take actually as long as we thought it might. Well, I think we finished the podcast and we were prepping it to send it out to all our listeners, and boom, two hours after. NBCU threatened to pull its TV everywhere channels off of Roku, a deal got cut. And then the next day or the next trading session, Roku stock was up 17%. So it seems like a big win for Roku. We don't know what was actually in the agreements, but Roku shareholders seem to like it. What do you think, Rich? Look, there's no doubt that Roku getting access to Peacock is good for Roku, especially with Amazon still not having it. I think the question is going to be, or the real challenge is going to be, what's actually the agreement? From what we can tell, Roku did get access to Peacock inventory, so they'll be able to sell inventory on Peacock, but it'll be much more like Hulu. So if you think about Hulu, Hulu can't sell individual shows. Hulu can only sell demos. So if you want to reach men 18 to 34 you can buy across all channels you can't just buy peacock or sorry you can't just buy hulu on a roku device um you can you know you have to buy across everything that's on the hulu network same thing with roku it's going to be across the entire roku platform within a given demo so that's probably a modest win for nbc but you know having inventory not just sold by nbc that's obviously a win for Roku. So I think there's probably a win on each side. This is probably not the deal that either side actually wanted. The real question that investors are going to want to know is what do the economics actually look like? And we don't know yet. I don't think we'll ever know what those economics look like, Rich. It's true. I mean, look, when you think about the Roku you know, the revenue stream, it's very hard to delineate whether it's advertising on the platform, advertising within channels, advertising on buttons, data, a, a licensing. There's so many different pieces that get thrown into the Roku platform revenue. It's really hard, but it definitely shows that this there is this just – everywhere we look, there's this increasing battle between – 
you know, programmer and sort of the TV OS platform. Yep. And I just think we're going to be hearing a lot more about this battle over the course of the next 12 months. Yeah, so an announcement that moved the stock 17% is not going to be noticeable in the reported results of the company that stock that's moved 17%? That's correct. Okay. Well, just checking. Which that's the market we're in now. Barely unbelievable. Okay. Um, so you will know the economics of the deal because they will, I think you're saying, will be not noticeable in the reported results of Roku. Well, <laughs> so there's the terms of the agreement. Because if well, they were it's, it's also, paying them something it's also or there was with, some with revenue Peacock. generation as a result through ads, then you would see it. Rich, um, with Peacock, wasn't a lot of the um, advertising, I'll almost call it like a sponsorship model because there were so few advertisers kind of set in stone for a couple of years before it was going to be opened up to everyone else. So we don't even know how much remnant inventory there is actually even available to sell at this point. That's a great yeah. point. Uh, there's obviously some linear channels inside of Peacock that might, you know, where they're running like the Kardashian channel and things like that, that there might be incremental inventory on. Maybe that's where they're getting this from. Uh, but, you know, look, Peacock is also not a big revenue number in the first couple of years. I mean, it's, as Brandon said, low ad inventory. This is a cut of that ad inventory. So this is definitely not meaningful. You know, Roku's probably going to do a billion dollars plus of platform revenue. This is not going to move the needle. It's long-term excitement about their kind that's of right. gatekeeper power. Exactly. Yes, that's a good point. And the hope that... But how do we know that this, this is their gatekeeper power this, if we don't know the terms of the deal? Well, I yeah, yeah, that's... Uh, the extrapolation from investors, obviously there's a bit of a sigh of relief because it a deal was done and then... The extrapolation is that, okay, well, maybe they get an HBO deal done now. Maybe it was their rollover willingness rather than their... <laughs> well, yeah. It, very fair assessment, Walt. You know, I don't know. It's a great point. Um, we don't know. We don't know. That's the truth. Okay. But there certainly has not been any quick reaction from Amazon to add Peacock. So that's certainly interesting that, you know, they're... They don't feel like not having Peacock doesn't seem to be a major loss to Amazon. It, you know, it, we'll see. Let's um, on to the next. What? Is, yeah, no, no. Let, let's talk. Um, oh, let's. We've got um, <laughs> there, okay. Microsoft Zenimax. Sorry. Um, yeah. So Zenimax um, owns Bethesda, and Bethesda is the publisher of a bunch of games such as Elder Scrolls and Doom and Wolfenstein and Dishonored, so on and so forth. And I think there's... there's what what two, game's the big one? Like, is there a big game that they're well, known Elder, for? That like, Well, I mean, I just named the biggest ones, right? Cool. I think Elder Scrolls is probably, you know, of, of this group, the one that might be most interesting. But regardless, I think there's two big takeaways here one on the Microsoft side and one on the industry side. I'll start with the industry because we actually directly cover the game publishers. Uh, we've mentioned a bunch of times the publishers are very cash rich, very under levered, and each of the big three in the U.S. want more scale um, through M&A. And this takes an, a second potential acquisition off the table in addition to, to Warner. And so that's really not good news for maybe investors of 
EA and we had predicted that EA would buy Bethesda or Warner at the beginning of the year, which is looking like not happening, not happening. So one of our top 20 for 20 that um, we're not going to get to take a victory lap on. Then there's looking at it from the Microsoft perspective. And we've spoken a lot about the different, the different strategies between PlayStation and Microsoft over the last couple of weeks. Microsoft is very, very invested in making Game Pass work, in building out subscription and making really the games industry more, accept, more accessible at a lower price for more people. And I think to make Game Pass really work, it's really, it is, you really have to take frontline content and add it to the bundle. On a so day now day, they have more frontline content That's that they right. control. That's right. So for seven and a half billion dollars, if that's a huge strategic um, initiative for you, I think it makes a lot of sense. Even if you paid what twenty times EBITDA or whatever, look, Microsoft is enormous, as we know, has tons and tons of cash available to it. This is going to be accretive, no matter yeah. what. Microsoft's a one point six or one point seven yeah, trillion dollar like company. Who, like who cares for them? drop in the bucket. And as it, it looks like, you know, and we'll discuss TikTok at some point, I'm sure on this podcast, but as, as TikTok, it wasn't happening for them. You know, this is, this is something that's probably even a better acquisition for them than TikTok because it, it's, it feeds their strategic desires in the games business. How does this play into, you know, if we look at what's going on at, um, I'm just going to pull this up. We look at what Amazon announced yesterday <laughs> in terms of their video game service. Is, are they competing with Microsoft? Is, is this a competitive to Game Pass? Like, wh- wh- yes. How do you look at these two yeah. things? Okay, so now you have a situation. And first of all, Amazon, we all knew was going to launch a, a game streaming service. This has been... You know, rumored, speculated, whatever you want to say, for a long time. Now, each of the big three cloud players in really in the world, Amazon, Microsoft, and Google, all have game streaming services available. Um, the, it, the interesting thing with, with Luna is it's also tied to subscription, like you have with Stadia, and like you have with with Microsoft, um, and there is again catalog um, titles available. But what what I found the most interesting was that they they're using the channels initiative with this, like they do with video. So the the catalog games that they're offering with this, they're calling the Luna Plus channels, and then they cut a deal with Ubisoft where Ubisoft is going to have their own channel, right? And it's going to include frontline releases for Ubisoft. So it's almost like... And, and it'll be a separate subscription? So it'll be a separate subscription. Separate subscriptions like you do on video. So I think all, you know, Google, Microsoft, and Amazon all want to establish themselves as kind of gatekeepers using the cloud for this industry and they're taking different approaches to what streaming 
um, and subscript were really what subscription is going to be as a part of this. But the interesting thing about that, Brandon, is, you know, we're seeing the publishers or the content owners in video sort of pushing back against channel yes. stores. Disney yep. Plus doesn't want to yeah. be in the channel store. That's Hulu right. and Netflix don't want right. to be in and, a channel uh, and, store. And truthfully, just our opinion and analysis on this, if you're Activision, what, <laughs> you could just do this on your own, first of all. Second of all, why do you even want to train the consumer that subscription for like a package of games is a good thing when you're benefiting from having different ways to merch, very, very different ways to merchandise um, your, your titles and you control the consumer. I don't under, I honestly don't understand why these publishers would want to kind of feed the beast and, create a new intermediary i think they should look to what happened in video as a lesson ubisoft seems willing to do it i guess it makes sense because they have you know they're not as big into the sort of games as a service um uh type type games as um as some of the other publishers are but uh, I would steer. I would steer clear of subscription and and handing my titles to, especially first party, to any of these subscription services. If I were a publisher, my only reaction is is that the game space, like the video space, is very fragmented at the tail, and you know you've got lots of small publishers that don't have a way of doing subscription yeah, no. like an Activision. I'm not sure. No, no, no. You know, totally, so totally. I get it why you happen. do it. No, I understand for the smaller publishers, but what you don't want to happen if you're a big publisher and you're the you're sort of the reason that people have consoles and and gamers are spending a lot of time with your service, why do you want to enable a situation like what happened with Netflix where where content is kind of flattened is flattened out and individual titles mean less not sure what's going on there rich um on the screen um, he's, a, he's, he's, he's adjusting his mic volume because I just uh, sent him a message saying that, that last, he blasted us by yelling and it was he o- but he yeah. always does, he always does that if you're on no, that, no no but I but I actually guy, I thought of setting thing, Next thing you know, he's just like, your ears are pierced. I usually just move it down to here. I don't know why that happens. Anyway, the second okay, okay. that we have oh, up time here was, to our podcast. Oh, sorry, was Amazon announces new Fire TVs and a brand new home screen that makes it easier to find stuff to watch. Look, this is, again, we, a big theme for us has been the battle for the home. We've, we just talked about Roku. We've talked about Google. I'm sure we'll we'll talk about it again on this podcast. Um, Amazon. Brandon, what's but what really matters here? But I think what really matters here is forget the new Fire TVs. What I'm seeing, if I'm just staring at the screen right now, and for all of you um, who are listening versus watching. Fire TV is going to get a new interface. It's going to first be on the new devices that roll out shortly. All Fire TVs will get this sometime later this year or early next year, it sounds like. And what you see, and the reason I'm bringing this up is it's going to flow into our next slide on Google, is that it's a much more graphical interface. It's putting yep. the, it's pulling the content forward and making it all about the content versus more about the apps. And if we flip over to the next well, slide, I'll, if you I'll look say, at- Rich, I, I just want to like hold up. I think there's a couple of important things in in the um, Amazon Fire news. Um, 
yes, it's faster processor, better graphical interface. There's more room to advertise content, so on and so forth, as you point out. But it's also they're leaning into that device being more than just for video watching. I think right. the Alexa integration is is more prominent. One of the big themes was using it as a communications tool. They're going to have Zoom integration going forward. So you have Roku on the one hand who is who has a box that's just for video and now you're starting and this might be a good segue to your next slide about Google. Right. Now you're having others who are trying to control what happens in the living room and make this more about or actually the whole home, bigger, right? The whole home because they have right. bigger strategic ambitions. Okay. Now so, you can so, Sorry so to cut you off there, but now you no, can no, move no. on to Google. No, no. So I've got my background is the launch night in, which is Google's event on the 30th, where they're launching what appears to have leaked out um, on Friday, which is pictures of the new Chromecast. And rather than just having to sort of cast stuff, it's going to be a full set top box. So you get a remote control. We have a picture of the remote up on the screen. It's got an to Brandon's point, it's got an assistant button, or the Google Assistant button, very prominent. And I wouldn't call that a full set-top box. Maybe functionality-wise it is, but that thing is... Well, as opposed to the Google Chrome, the Chromecast, Walt, the old Chromecast, you had to use your phone. Um, and it's it, tiny, it, though. I mean, it, look at the thing. It's not really... A, no, it, but it, tiny... Sorry, I guess, you know, you're right. Functionality of... of no, but, uh, but we have podcasts listeners, and we're looking at thing that I would say is more of a dongle than... It is a dongle. It's box. miniaturized, yes. But it's it functions just like a Roku and just like a Fire TV. And what's interesting Fire stick, about... Fire Roku correct. stick, so on and so forth. But what's fascinating about this is that they're making Google Assistant very prominent. So voice search uh, is going to be very visible. And then there's only two content buttons on the device. One, no surprises, YouTube. And remember, I think everyone forgets that YouTube is the second most used app on all streaming devices for the TV. And the other button is Netflix, which is number one. So they're putting the one and two most used use cases for connected TVs directly onto their remote. This all shows sort of why this is important to Google. Yes, Stadia. Yes, Nest. We can go into all the other home, whole home. But so much of this is about making YouTube content even more accessible. And remember, they don't share YouTube revenue with Roku. They don't share YouTube revenue with anyone. They keep 100% of those ad dollars. And it's a very meaningful part of streaming television. So Google's going to announce a new Chromecast next week. We think they're going to announce new Android TV software, which sort of relates to what Brandon talked about for the Fire TV. I think it's going to bring the content much more forward. Uh, you can see they're already rolling out. Uh, this is a TCL TV that we have up on the screen. More models, more SKUs rolled out to Best Buy this week. Still with the old interface, but I think you're going to see a very new interface shortly um, in terms that's of a, what comes out of this. Oh, that's that's a, a, I have the wrong one. I have the Roku. <laughs> I was looking at it and I was like, wow, the new interface uh, really looks wait, a lot like Roku. That remote, then I look uh, to the right and it says a smart Roku TV. You know, they're the, we're not perfect here at Lightshed. <laughs> it's been a long night, but they're, they're the exact same price and I just grabbed the wrong Mitch one on the very screen. very worried about the election. Right I don't now. <laughs> understand why you think that remote's innovative. I mean, there's been a voice button on every remote on my TV, my Sony TV, my Apple remote. 
any remote, there's had a voice thing. And also on the Sony, well, there's also a Netflix and an Amazon Prime button. So to me, that's really not that interesting to have those buttons on the remote. It's what people are already familiar with. Google's been in, I, I would say Google's had the wrong approach to TV. I mean, the Chromecast has not worked. They have fans. And, 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 so and as them. a reminder for everyone, I, I was going to bring this up a little earlier, started to. The Chromecast, you use your phone as the as the remote. It there there was it's horrible. It's a horrible it, experience. There well, I, wasn't I look at that remote I'm not, like you, you've ripped apps. on the Apple remote in the past. That to me is no better or no, no worse than the Apple remote. So like, do I really give a shit what's on their remote? And am I actually going to use that? I don't think I it's, am. It's it's a shift though from it's the a old, shift for them. The I'm just saying, but strategy. Do, are, are consumers really going to care? And you have a different color well, button there, which is. Google hold on. Assistant. No, no. Walt just nailed it. There's I think the most in, no, no, hold on. every remote. I mean, wait, wait, wait. So Walt, Walt, Walt nailed the most important point. Nobody knows what an out. Android. Nobody knows what a Chromecast is. Nobody knows what an Android TV is. The only thing that's going to matter for this event next week is if the event is followed by a massive marketing campaign to tell you what these devices are and why you want them. Google's never done that for TV before. Never done that for for Google TV. I mean, Android TV. They've never done that before for. Chromecast. They kind of suck at that in general. Okay, so to well, me, VH. that remote looks like something that's shrink wrapped on a CVS store for twenty dollars. Whoa! To take. I mean, mean. there's nothing interesting about that. So good luck marketing that piece of junk. Wow. From the remote standpoint. From a remote standpoint. Again, I think it's good. there is a remote this time. Right, there right. is a remote. The whole room, everything on it is white except for one button. Which brand? I think it's your Google point. Like, why not just use your phone? I mean, that's that's the way. No, it's just it two cut socks. Stop, okay. stop. That's your mom, exact- my mom, your mom are not using. Yeah, guess a Chromecast using their phone. That. My mom's not going to plug that thing into her television and use that remote either. Oh, she'll so my, use, but she'll she'll, she'll, she'll do TV. it. She'll do it with a Roku though. Maybe no, she'll just continue to use her Comcast X One box. Oh, that's painful. Okay, well, let me tell you something, Walt. I in this house I have Comcast X1. I have Roku and Apple TV all on different televisions. Yes. I the X1 for over the top sucks and there's barely any apps at all. Or okay, let's go. Let's go to let's shift gears. 5G Walt. No offense to our friends at Comcast, by the way. Um you love to introduce these tweets with like nothing having what they have to do with it. (laughs) Well, sorry, Walt, your industry is a little more esoteric than ours is. I do want to say that the name of the article, I do see that coming. Rich and I don't understand shit about spectrum. Okay, Walt, go ahead. My cast listeners, get ready for some acronyms. It's acronym time. It's Walt's section of acronyms. Um. You're all familiar with the term ecosystem, right? Things work and they're in, embedded in devices. Like that's not that. Together, not Rich, acronym. let's say yes. Ecosystem. <laughs> so for, for Spectrum to be usable and valuable, it has to be an ecosystem. And, and Sasha Sagan from um, PC Mag, I guess now, um, <clears throat> had just identified that the C-band Spectrum that yes, you were actually right, Rich. That everyone is identified as the five G spectrum is not is not in any phones or infrastructure today. Um, so that's obviously a very important thing in terms of when Verizon, who's relying on this spectrum, is going to be able to use it. So it's not shockingly new information, but it, it's it's a, a good follow on from something that happened earlier in the week. If you go to the next slide, um, <clears throat> where T Mobile, which 
a month ago, we put out this blog and or note, excuse me, and and in there we identified there was like this small little court case that we found that that Verizon or excuse me, the a filing that Verizon made about a transaction that T-Mobile had done six months ago. And I'm looking at that and, and asking around, I'm like, okay, this looks like Verizon's aiming to try and prevent T-Mobile from bidding in this big spectrum auction, which is going to enable 5G in this ecosystem, blah, 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 right? No one really paid attention to it. A couple of weeks later, AT&T makes a similar filing. And next thing you know, uh, Mike Sievert, the <clears throat> CEO of, of T-Mobile, has this long blog post saying like, oh my God, like AT&T and, and uh, Verizon are trying to threaten us from getting in this thing. And this is so bad. And meanwhile, he had been asked about this on, on, a, on a, a recent earnings call. And at that point, and I wish we could have played the audio, but he was basically just saying AT&T and Verizon are absolutely going to kill each other over C-band. They're going to spend tens of billions of dollars and basically making it seem like they have no interest. And here, like a week or two later, he's writing a blog post saying like, oh my God, what if we aren't able to bid in the C-band auction? How are they locking it up? The bottom line is they're probably going to be able to bid because I can't see an FCC turning down a potential bidder driving up the price for the spectrum. But What do you think changed? Um, why the change? Why such a vicious change in a short period of time? In terms of T-Mobile's response, because I don't. Yeah, think, I think when they read the same filing that we highlighted, they probably didn't maybe put connect those dots, and then they're like, "Well, wait a minute! Like, at a minimum, even if we're not going to bid in this auction, we can't let Verizon or AT&T walk away with cheap spectrum." But the reality is, like, T-Mobile sits on a ton of midband spectrum that they can use for 5G. More spectrum means faster speeds. So the longer that um, they can delay Verizon or um, make it more expensive for Verizon to get this new C-band spectrum, which needs an ecosystem to build up in, um, the better it's going to be for them. The other interesting point of, of um, Sasha's tweet talking about the lack of, of um, ecosystem for C-band is Verizon CEO Hans Vesberg made a huge deal on, a, on an earnings call um, you know, from, I think it was last quarter, where someone asked him about the L-band spectrum, which is Legato. He's like, oh my God, there's no, there's no ecosystem there. Why would we use that? And here, <clears throat> the spectrum <clears throat> excuse me, that they're planning on using for 5G going forward similarly has no ecosystem. So it just shows you how kind of management teams will say things on their earnings call perhaps to downplay an asset that they might actually be interested in. In Verizon's case, perhaps it's L-band, maybe not. And in T-Mobile's case, perhaps it's C-band, that they actually do want this, even though Mike Sievert was saying that, that they had no interest in. Not too many acronyms there. No, that was good, Walt. Thank it you. was understandable for the layman like Rich <laughs> and I. And you're a wonderful storyteller in addition to being a star man. <laughs> we'll come back to the star man thing. So there's a back in April, man. back in April, we had been talking about the fact or we made a declaration on this podcast back in April that no major movies would be released during um, calendar 2020 and probably not until summer 2021. We made one mistake, obviously, that Warner Brothers and Chris Nolan were so intent on putting out a film, they decided to lose a ton of money by putting it out uh, on Labor Day. Uh, I don't but think that was a mistake. I, I don't I think, think it. I think, I think, I don't Rich, think, I think you were the one. I was the one I saying think it was tenant. crazy, <laughs> and you kept saying, "No, Chris Nolan really wants it in the theater." So that was not our mistake per se. No, there's Nolan's mistake, right? Chris yeah. Nolan's mistake, but AT and T's mistake for not saying, you know, this no, is this is fuck off, Walt, like, We this need is, this to drive our subs. That's right. Well, I, that's your weekly plug for that. 
<laughs> Sorry, I have to get it in every week because it's so crazy. Star I was asking you to bring it up when you were going off about the games, Brandon, because it's the same thing. You're talking about these high-profile games and sticking in the bundle for the value of the bundle. I'm like, wow, that sounds tremendously like what we talked about in terms of Chris Nolan's movie, but I didn't want to like, you know, get into that again. Tremendously. It's okay. But, but Disney, for our podcast listeners. Go, but sorry, Disney, go Disney has basically Strongly. pushed their... They have pushed their entire movie slate into uh, basically to May through December 2021. So Disney's basically giving up. And I think what really there's two things. One, obviously, this is really bad for the movie exhibition industry that now has basically no content until uh, well into 2021. And I would assume most of the theater chains are going to start to close again because it doesn't make sense to operate with very little content. But the other piece of this that is more important for, for Disney investors is a lot of Disney investors we talk to really thought that after Hamilton um, and after Mulan, that Disney was sort of like going, oh, my God, there's a way we can do this. We don't need the movie theaters. We can push content directly onto our platform and, and you know, sort of shift away from movie theaters. And this is a clear sign that Disney's not ready to be Netflix. Disney isn't ready to abandon the movie theater industry. They want to go theaters, home video, then Disney Plus for their major films. And so Unfortunately, that means everyone's going to have to wait to see this content until, you know, basically summer 2021. But it also means that Netflix doesn't have a whole lot of competition over the next year as they put out a ton of content, ton of movies. There won't be Disney movies coming directly to Disney Plus. There may be a small film like Soul, which is a small Pixar film that's still sort of slated to come out this year. But all of the major event films from Disney are going to be theatrical in 2021. I think that's a pretty big win for Netflix competitively. What about Rich? What about the television shows, the originals for Disney Plus? Were those shifted also at all? I think I think they well, may have been a little bit. I mean, Mandalorian. I think Mando's coming, and yeah, we know Mando's coming. But Mando's and theoretically, they should have more more than one show to drive their well, subscription. WandaVision is sh- was shot and done pre-pandemic, so WandaVision will come out later this year. I forget the exact date. Uh, that's a Marvel yeah, series they're yeah. doing. But in terms of the new, you know, the Loki and the other major things that they were working on, those have all been pushed production-wise into 2021. Um, you know, actually, I can pull up. Um, we should actually jump forward for a second, just because I think it talks to the challenges right now of shooting production. We have uh, Mandy Moore on This Is Us. Uh, recorded the first day back at work. And I'm just going to play this because it sort of just shows how difficult for the audience. You're watching her Instagram story of the first day back at work for season five of This Is Us. Let's see if I can play this. Hold on. And we're back. Hi. I wouldn't doubt it. You're in a shower shower stall. stall (laughs) And I'm in B. Here's where our props go. And what you're looking at, what you're looking at is basically each actor is put into a shower, a wooden shower stall that's been created on the set so that they can basically keep every actor and all of their props distance or separated from every other actor. And I think it just shows how difficult shooting is going to be. And, you know, this is a relatively small you know, you think about this is a shot on a soundstage. You think about massive casts for Marvel movies, Star Wars movies. It is really going to be hard to replicate this. And I think that's why most of the bigger productions and Brandon, you talked about Disney plus originals, getting those back into production is going to be much more challenging than things that are shot on a, on an LA soundstage like this. 
So do you think that um, Disney disclosed this plan to move the slate back to Verizon before Verizon agreed to um, pay for these subscriptions for its high-tier unlimited customers on an ongoing basis? You know, it's, it's I don't know. You know, it's, it's just, it's funny. Like, you listen to Disney CEO and he talked about sort of the, you know, that everything was on the table, that they were really all in on streaming, that he was, you know, had seen the light after Hamilton. And I don't know if it was sort of the underwhelming performance of Mulan that scared them off. You know, they're, yeah, of course it was like they clearly saw that they don't have that. They can't generate the type of profitability. But but Walt, I don't know. My guess is the Marvel team from everything I've heard, the Marvel team doesn't believe in putting movies direct to digital. So just like Chris Nolan likes the movie theaters, I think Kevin Feige and his team at, at Marvel, they just fundamentally believe in movie theaters. So my guess is Verizon sort of knew that this was going to happen when they agreed. I'd be surprised because I don't think anyone internally, I know investors thought there was a shot. We never thought that Disney was going to shift Black Widow and the other films direct to digital. It's just not the way the Marvel team thinks about the business. I certainly wouldn't expect Vesper to admit it if they you know, were in fact surprised. But the reality is that if T-Mobile is offering you Netflix on us and Verizon's offering you Disney, I mean, that's another one of those kind of, you know, little hooks when things are going to get uh, increasingly competitive as we enter this kind of higher upgrade cycle of, of 5G that Netflix is going to have incremental perceived value with the customer compared to Disney if they're not adding that type of content on there. I mean, look, Ron Howard's putting out one of you know, one of his big movies. It's an Amy Adams movie in November. It's called Hillbilly Elegy. It's the first movie that Ron Howard and Brian Grazer from Imagine have ever put out on streaming, and it's going to Netflix. And so major films, major animated films, major films are coming to Netflix over the next six to nine months, while all of these studios, whether it's you know Warner with HBO Max, whether it's Disney with Disney+, Plus. They're just punting and saying, we'll wait till next summer. And I think that's, I mean, first of all, I think it's crazy that we have to wait for theaters, uh, but that's the way these companies are going to operate. Let's talk about something that is impossible to analyze, which is the current TikTok situation. You know, I've been covering stocks for 26 years. Looking at this slide, I can't, this slide looks impossible to read. <laughs> well, what I just, the hell, there's like five tweets on here. I just wanted to highlight a few different things. One is the fact that, you know, we have a tweet from Alex Seed saying, under the new Trump approved deal, TikTok will be 12.5% owned by Oracle, 75 by Walmart, and 80% owned by ByteDance. And yet, when you listen to the Trump administration, they say that. TikTok will be 100% owned by U.S. companies or U.S. investors. And so there seems to be a you know, pretty dramatic difference of opinion on who's going to own TikTok. And then we've got this tweet that came out of, um, out of the Chinese press uh, basically saying the U.S. behaved like a gangster to rob TikTok from China and Beijing has no reason to approve the deal. Chinese media, an agreement of the ownership of TikTok operations approved by Washington last weekend is a dirty and underhanded trick. You know, I don't know what actually happens here. Uh, you know, technically, the new deadline is Sunday night, although we've got another tweet on here saying the court system another deadline, is right? another Cross, deadline across yeah. this line. <laughs> taking the I don't know over once again on the newer deadline. No deal. No takedown. And we just wait. You think we wait? You, let's just let that's actually a good question. Walt. do you think we know what happens to TikTok before the election or do you think it's a post-election issue? 
I think this is just a good way to make noise against um, China, right? I mean, obviously there was probably something driving it in terms of that one rally that was poorly attended. So I think that obviously may have had something to do with with this as well. Um, but it's just a noise factor in terms of something getting resolved. There's there, you know, you couldn't fit all the tweets there, but there's probably disagreement within the administration themselves in terms of Mnuchin saying one right. thing and Barr saying another thing, and and. And there's you have the cabinet has some what I will call more pragmatic members, maybe Mnuchin, right? And some real China hawks in there as well. So there's also the courts that actually dictate many of these things. So even if they want to do something, then there's you know, you can get obviously things stopped before they law and order, law and order. I'm just going to say that honestly, I'm guessing next next week when we have this, I will have continued to enjoy uh, another week of TikToks and the week after that as well. But we'll see. Uh, so let's go Perpetual to... Um, topic. Well, let's talk about something that's really upbeat and that is exciting, which is Spotify doing a deal with Chernin Entertainment, Peter Chernin coming to a deal where they're going to turn the O&O podcast. So that, you know, Spotify has bought a lot of podcast companies over the course of... Uh, the last year, as we've been talking about multiple times in this podcast, they're going to basically have a first look deal where Chernin's going to basically look at the IP that's coming out of Spotify and have the ability to turn it into movies and TV shows. And this sort of IP creation out of podcasts has been a big theme for us, Brandon. Like yeah. everywhere we look, this is this topic is getting more I and more. This is this is more to do with the sort of narrative podcasts. Um, yeah, and, Gimlet, and, Parcast. Gimlet. It's really Gimlet. Which, I don't think we're turning Bill Simmons I think into is actually, uh, drama. Yeah, obviously, which I think is kind of underwhelmed a little bit for for Spotify. If you look at kind of what the top podcasts have been, and I don't know, each of us are invested in personally in multiple podcast studios, so not to talk against our book, but I think narrative podcasts haven't really led the way uh for for the top of the charts have they it's it's really sort of the everyday ongoing series but this is a way for monetization to occur i think it's those. you know I, I think you got to separate top of the charts you know like a michelle obama or a joe rogan being top of the charts the narrative podcasts have a very large audience. And, but remember, you know, I think what you're seeing out of Spotify is that the monetization, you know, um, exclusive podcast is a great hook for Spotify to drive you to the Spotify platform versus, you know, you want to listen to Michelle Obama, you got to be on Spotify. But monetization. But if you really want to monetize podcasting, it's still really early on the advertising side. It's going to get better. But there's a huge opportunity when you look at, I mean, take Peacock. Peacock, yep. one of their big original shows is Dirty John, which is from Wondry. Uh, we're an investor in Wondry. Uh, but you, when you think about Wondry, here is a company that is creating, you know, really solid IP and then can turn it into a TV show on Peacock. They, you know, outbid other players for it. And so I think this yep. sort of just speaks to the theme that it's still very early for podcasting on the ad side, but there's a lot of other ways to make money. And it's great to see Chernin coming in and sort of validating that this is IP, just like books. You know, we think we talk about books as a cheap way of, or one way of finding 100%. IP. Yep. Now podcasting is a way of sourcing IP for the movie and TV industry. And it's a, it's a good place to test stories that you may think are worthy of a TV series or film right. for really a real really really inexpensively it's almost like kind of like the minor leagues 
for video production is, right. is a role that podcasts can take on, particularly the narrative ones. Now, just the other night, I, I think this was literally last night, Walt texts all of us and goes, LinkedIn has stories and I'm trying it. Uh, and Walter, what's so if what you, did, if, I'm sorry, Gary V is excited about this. Any podcast LinkedIn. listeners out there that are not linked onto me yet or whatever it is, I, I, this, I think this is, I'm going to be early on the platform, Rich. I didn't do Instagram. I never did Snapchat and stories. Um, but this will be the platform that I will excel at LinkedIn stories. What are you going to put on your LinkedIn stories? Walt? It's horrible content last night about the football game, but I'm going to have to think about that, but uh, it'll be, it's going to have to be more professional oriented. Definitely not probably a good outlet for your star man ambitions. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's going to be a mixture of both, but yes, I was shocked to see stories there. I was one of three people. I got 20 views on my, uh, on my LinkedIn story. I will say when I opened up, just to, to make you both smile, when I opened up my LinkedIn um, just before this, I did see that Gary V had already posted. So. I, 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 honestly, I, <laughs> he's a boss. <laughs> That's what I said at the beginning. I'm sure Gary V is excited about this. He's always early. He's always early. And so yeah, Walt's following all, that he's trend. He's also super excited about LinkedIn recently when he was on Light Shed Live with us. Uh, look, I actually really, I mean, look, I hate the app itself, but yeah. I find LinkedIn incredibly valuable as a networking tool. I just yep. wish the app wasn't sort of circa 2001. I mean, that's my sort well, of challenge. They're, they're with trying it. to bring it up to date. I don't know if stories is kind of the, the right fit and visual and video is necessarily the well, right fit for well, We're going to see, Brandon. We'll see how, but it, how look, I it's a recruit. It's a recruiter app mostly. No right? And a networking app that they probably need other reasons for engagement on there. And we'll see I'm actually more there. excited about um, Pinterest, Pinterest adding stories because yeah. Pinterest is a very visual medium, you know, to your point, yeah. Brandon, it's a visual medium. Uh, as we've seen with Instagram, it's very easy to kind of flick up to go to products. And so I think making it easier video wise to consume content on Pinterest and link it to commerce you know, to me, seems like a very natural use case that, you know, looking at what's what's going on right now, e-commerce is exploding and Pinterest is basically creating more ways for people to be engaged in a visual manner that can link to different products. So I, I like this. It's very early for Pinterest, obviously, but it's just sort of interesting that they're doing, you know, same week LinkedIn, we see sort of the beta launch of Pinterest doing stories. It's not really defined as a uh, quick follow there. One other comment, Rich. I, I'd be interested to, to know like the mixture of desktop usage of LinkedIn versus the app compared to something like Pinterest or Instagram, whatever, because the stories, mm. I, I didn't see it on my desktop app. So like, you're only going to see my stories or I guess anyone's right. stories if you're using the app on your phone. I just don't. Uh, I would say that I am probably a, I, I would say it's of all of the apps I use, you know, in terms of, Let's leave Twitter aside. If I think about Facebook, Instagram, um, TikTok, obviously, those are all things that I use almost exclusively on mobile. Uh, I'd say my LinkedIn usage is probably pretty balanced. It might even skew a little towards desktop if I actually thought about it over the course of an entire work week. Yeah. It's right. So that's make, make that story less that's the problem. impactful, right? Yeah. No, no, totally. It's a great point. Okay. So let's look at um, uh, Dave Timken's tweet, uh, Walt on Starlink. Well, yeah. So Dave 
is commenting on a light reading story where they were basically summarizing an analyst report. You know, Starlink is a is a part of SpaceX. Both it's a private company. Starlink is this thing that we've talked about a couple of times on the podcast about Elon launching satellites to provide internet primarily going after kind of rural customers. So I actually kind of trolled um, the tweet first saying like, uh, yeah, their conclusion of this analyst was that it's not going to be competitive to cable and telco. And then there's like a, literally a quote from Elon in there saying anyone that thinks that we're trying to be competitive with telco, we're not like, so it was a kind of a odd conclusion, but Temkin um, and others went after the math, basically saying like, yeah, you did the math completely wrong and that the number of customers that um, SpaceX and through Starlink can serve is is much more. So I think, you know, Elon, we love talking about him. He's one of those guys that just triggers people. Um, they're putting together interesting technology. They're launching these satellites, you know, maybe initially it will just have this impact on the rural guys like you know, Echo Star or um, Viasat, you know, people that have no access. But I mean, not every broadband customer is going to be using three gigabit of uh, you know, service or need three gigabit service in five or seven years time. And to the extent that these guys can deliver 100 megabit service with low latency, you know, I think that the, the case for the, the market opportunity um, for Starlink and um, you know, their ability to compete is, is, is probably better than what a lot of people, um, like to, to, uh, to, I think shit on them about. And I think it's just interesting that Temkin hops in and other really smart tech people hopped in, you know, kind of like basically going after the haters, going after the Elon haters and support and saying the technology is not as bad as you think it is. But it's also, isn't it part of this is also like everyone wants to sort of defend the cable use case, like cable broadband is safe and secure. Don't worry about competition. Like hundred percent. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of like, here's what I know, like cables there, it's going to grow with X percent and like, no, nothing, nothing can stop it. And, and again, here's a case where the guy wasn't even saying that he was planning on going after cable or telco. And yet like, Oh, you're not going to go out. You're not going to hurt cable. And telco. Okay, okay. Well, we'll see what happens as, as Elon launches more of these satellites. And, and again, the big thing um, for podcast listeners in this is there is a big issue going on at the FCC right now because Elon would like to move the elevation of those satellites closer to Earth. He's getting contested um, by Amazon, um, by Dish, by AT&T, or trying to prevent him from doing that. So that's a big decision that's kind of under the radar that not a lot of people are talking about, but does have implications, I think, for a number of different business cases out there as far as how this spectrum is going to use. But we'll talk about that in in the future podcasts. So sort of betting iCasino has been a bigger and bigger topic, Brandon. Yeah, iCasino, um, sports betting. Um, so the tweet that we have up on the, on the screen is breaking. William Hill confirms it is the subject of a bidding war between casino firm Caesars Entertainment and asset manager Apollo Global Management. Um, and look, I, I very quickly, I think there's a couple of things here. One is we've continued to highlight um, sports betting as an important and growing um, business in the United States with a lot of potential over time as more and more states um, have legalized sports betting, number one. But number two is, as we think about the profitability of the of 
this the sports betting industry i think one of the key things is that you're going to have to have consolidation down to probably three or four key players in every state as opposed to nine or ten which should rational which wait, 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 nine or ten wait wait nine or ten in new jersey i think yeah. there's 19 players okay whatever <laughs> i mean <laughs> yeah i know 19 19 right I mean, I think the idea is at some point you get to a rational oligopoly um, where the promotional nature of the business sort of peters out and each of the brands kind of stand for something and you can have a much higher margin business. Right now, CAC is is a huge issue. So if you look at the players there, um, one is Caesars, who I think already has a relationship with William Hill. Um, sort of plus William Hill potentially takes what a, a player out of the marketplace and Apollo, which has been very good at rolling up um, industries in the past coming in. We know what they've done I, most recently, I guess, with broadcast television is a good example. And so maybe you, this is starts an M&A wave, which, uh, which gets to where, the number of players needs to be for this industry to do well. R- reminds me, actually, the kind of DirecTV dish talk has been relatively quiet in the last couple of weeks since that news broke. We haven't really heard much, Walt. Nothing nothing new on that front. <laughs> nothing. That's a non-sequitur. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, well, no, I'm you, the one who's you, supposed to have non-sequiturs. Well, no, you, you mentioned Apollo, and there was oh, you know, okay, chatter, yeah, obviously, I, about yeah. Apollo helping that transaction happen. And said so that, squirrel. <laughs> squirrel. Um. So, Walt, you wanted this tweet in here from our good friend Jason Hershorn. Why don't you explain what's going on? Yes, because I know we've all had our battles about you Peloton lovers, and I'm the kind of anti-Peloton guy. So I just wanted to I'm not a Peloton lover. I don't even exercise. I'm a huge fan. I'm a huge fan. I admit it. So Hershorn um, said, hi, one Peloton. Why don't workouts on treadmill count toward activity goal and health? They're synced. He, He showed a, you know, his screen from his iPhone. So to me, I thought this was interesting, and this you know, speaks to kind of the power of the ecosystem of Apple and things that they can do to make things more difficult. And we talked about this before. Well, um, remember Spotify, the Spotify conversation? Well, I remember exactly the exact thing, the Apple music versus Spotify. Like here's the little shit that Apple does to try and bring you into their ecosystem of of apps. And which is why, you know, we had this big debate before, so I thought that was a, a great. High, is, I'm sure Jason didn't mean no, to. No, I you know, didn't mean to. I'm um, I'm wondering, Walt, is it just kind of like a fuck up that needs an app update? <laughs> it's good. Well, no, I, it, it raises the question: Is this is this is this blocked? You know, like down offline offline music on the Apple Watch is blocked for Spotify. It's only available to Apple Music. Uh, yeah. We don't know whether stuff like That's this fair. Is, That's fair. is treadmill data yeah. blocked Which or has exactly to Walt's point or is yeah. it just a fuck up? Well, no, we're not even a fuck up. Maybe it just hasn't gotten there we're yet. We're going to get to in a couple yeah. of weeks or months or maybe right. never. Who knows? Uh, we don't yeah. know the answer to that. Okay, we've got one last tweet for the week, which I know is a topic Only that we've more. been talking about. One more. We got one last tweet of the week, and the topic is Quibi. Right. So n- news came I out. I might have another topic after this, but go on. The news came out that Quibi is exploring strategic options, including a potential sale. And, you know, obviously Quibi has had a very rough start. I mean, that would be the understatement of 2020 from a media standpoint. But the, the real question is on a sale, because I can name lots of companies that theoretically would want Quibi because it has 
um, content that has actually pretty good quality, but hasn't gotten seen. The challenge with buying Quibi, at least from a 50,000 foot level, is they don't really own the content. So Netflix, which makes Stranger Things, actually owns Stranger Things. They are making their own movies. They're making their own TV shows. Quibi is basically just licensing them for a period of a couple of years before it reverts back to the owners, meaning the studios that created it. And so it, unless Quibi has a lot of subscribers, which we know it doesn't, it does raise the question of how do you value Quibi if it doesn't actually own and have rights to the content in perpetuity? It makes it hard to see why a Snapchat or an Apple or you know anybody who's in the mobile content world makes it hard to see how much they could pay for it without owning the content. And again, the most important thing, forget the owning the content that you brought up there is there's not a lot of subscribers. It hasn't even been proven that consumers want to watch professional content on mobile in this way. I'll say the same thing that I said the first time we met with Quibi, which is basically it felt more like the output of a consulting um, project than it than something that consumers necessarily. Really the only thing I put the only thing I push back on the utmost yeah. respect to Jeffrey because he's done yeah. amazing things throughout his career. But but it was funny. I saw a venture capitalist. I forget who it was. I'm, uh, but he tweeted out an alternative perspective on Quibi, and he tweeted out the top ten entertainment apps. And so I'm just going to read off the top ten entertainment apps on iOS right now. Number one, no. Does surprise this include take- games? No, this is okay. just enter- entertainment. Because what? So, because what percent? Of, I understand. Of time spent in entertainment on mobile is mobile games. But go on. TikTok's number one. Netflix is number two. Number three is Hulu. Four is Amazon Prime Video. Five is Roku. Number six is Disney Plus. Seven, surprisingly, is Watch TNT, but I guess we're in playoff basketball season. Uh, by the way, now we're so far down the list that, like, it, uh, the head I'm just gonna, is, okay, go I ahead. understand. I'm going to surprise you, though. Number eight is HBO Max. Number nine is Quibi. Number 10 is Tubi. Number 11 is Crunchyroll. And wait for it. Number 12. Guess what number 12 is? Peacock. So it's just interesting to me that Quibi was is actually, you know, notably above Peacock in this. Like you yeah, would but that, even Tubi. That's, that's on and Tubi's mobile. free. Right. That's, I understand. That's only on mobile, right? I understand. And look at even Netflix. Most most of Netflix is still watched on the big screen to this day. That's true. Right? So that's that. I think the other the other topic that we just didn't get to is um, is that um, Chase is leaving as CEO of Formula One. Chase Carey. Yeah, Chase Carey. And the new CEO, Stefan Domenicali, I, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, is coming in. I think the important thing with Formula One that Chase did is he came in and he professionalized it. Post um, post Bernie, who was you know ruling for I don't know fifty six I don't even know how many years, um, he got the Concord Agreement done. He's a great deal maker. He got well. The, investors the also love him, right? Yeah, I mean, investors, investors know love him. him. He got the teams to buy in to to some changes that were were tough to make. Budget cap, which I I think goes into effect next year, and then the tech regulations for the year after. So he did a lot of great things, and now it's a real, I guess, industry insider, um, someone who was at Ferrari for a long time and helped, you know, 
take the Lamborghini brand to the next level when he was CEO there. So I think Formula One is in a different place now and Chase's work is done and it's kind of onto a next phase there. It'll be interesting to see what Chase does next besides being non-executive chairman, whatever the hell that means um, at Formula One. And, and by the way, I'm watch, finally watching Succession. Speaking of Chase. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost just watching the show is just too close to home. Having followed News Corp and Fox since by the 1995. Way, it's to just be honest, that, in, that entire like fitting in Formula One was just to say that I'm finally watching Succession. And <laughs> the, um, uh, the characters... Um, are amazing. It's are, amazing. Are amazing. The interpretation. Let's let's, <laughs> let's go no further than okay, that. Okay. Okay. I think that's a great place to wrap episode twenty three <laughs> and just tell everyone to have a very good weekend. Uh, and if you're fasting, have an easy fast. An easy fast on Monday. Ciao. Goodbye, Walter. <laughs>